and welcome to the November episode of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Janolfi. And I'm Howard Marlowe. Thanks very much to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today for hosting us. On this episode, we'll lay down the upcoming opportunities for federal funding for coastal communities. We'll discuss the importance of lobbying the federal appropriations process and the relationship between the Water Resources Development Act and appropriation bills and then have a brief discussion on all the coastal federal bills in the 117th Congress. Let's get started. So in just a few short months, Congress will be back to earmarking again, we suspect, depending on what the House does. Um, And that will mean opportunity for coastal communities to receive federal funding for your community projects without the paperwork and headache of federal grants. Now, while members of Congress change, your community needs don't. So regardless of who wins your local election this year, you will have a representative and he or she will be able to fight for the needs of your communities. Now is the time to get your community priorities lined up so that projects are eligible to to request and receive federal money after the new Congress is in session. There are over a dozen programs to receive federal funding from. If you're unsure whether your project is eligible for federal funding, just let one of us know. We'll be happy to let you know whether or not it is eligible for federal funding. So there are well over a dozen programs for earmarks uh, from water and sewer projects, roads and transportation, even ecosystem restoration, workforce training, um, community facilities, and more. Uh, there's a whole bunch out there, and I think really earmarking creates a, an enormous opportunities for local governments to get some of the funding that they really need. Absolutely. I think particularly the smaller local governments that uh, have difficulty with federal grants because uh, they don't compete well compared to the larger folks. Uh, This is a great opportunity to use earmarks. And earmarks, uh, if you look at today's process for earmarks, it is so transparent, it is so by the book that uh, all the bad stuff from the past has gone away. So it's a good thing for local governments to realize if you have priority needs, you need to let your congressional delegation know about that. Get aware of what the opportunities are. I know that's one of the things we uh, like to let our clients know about. We just try to say here, you know, the, here are the kinds of opportunities that are there for you. And do you have any needs that legitimately meet that? And when you get down to it, you still have to have a absolute legitimate need, a plan for how you're going to meet it, support from the council, et cetera. Yeah. There's usually a cost share component as well. Mm-hmm. But I think for, for a lot of, especially the smaller local governments, having the resources, having the staff to either, you either have to pay someone to go do the, the grant, which you, you might not end up you know, winning, right? So there's, there's the risk there. Otherwise, you have to have staff to do that. And you know, a lot of coastal local governments, you know, there's maybe a, a dozen people who work there. They don't have all these different departments and a lot of people wearing multiple hats. So it can be a real stretch um, to have to apply for grants. So this is one of the quickest and easiest ways of, of getting money directed, injected right into your community. Yeah, and it does come, uh, when Congress earmarks something, it's an appropriation bill and your community's name is attached to it. Can't go anywhere else. No, that's it. So you will get the money, and there will be a limited amount of paperwork just to account for it. So it, one, it 
it's going to legitimate purpose, and two, there is some uh, accountability for how that project, how that money is used for that project. So that, but that's you know the, far less paperwork than you have to do for a grant. And so this year, being an election year, there will be a significant numbers of number of members who are new to the process, um, are new to Congress, and you know I think many of us we think when you know you see somebody get elected or they are now in the senate or the house that they have this inherent understanding of the congressional process and that's not always true and i think that there's a lot of education that needs to be done uh for members and their staff particularly the new ones um and i think that's where lobbyists are are extremely effective and helpful because there is an a extraordinary body of knowledge from people who are not members of Congress or don't work in any departments, but they just have the understanding of how Washington works. And I think for any member, wherever you're coming from in the country, being in D.C. is going to be a new experience. Oh, yes. And they go through a, uh, a training process, um, both the House Clerk and Senate uh, Secretary, Congressional Management Foundation has some excellent training programs. But on the other hand, when it comes down to how you can actually help your constituents, lobbyists come in because they have the expertise, the time. They've been around longer than most members of Congress. Just about half the members of Congress after this election uh, will not have been here for more than four years. That's two House terms, less than one Senate term. And when you look at that, you really don't really know what's going on. You know, you found your way to the bathroom, you know where the bathrooms are, you know where the, the Republican club is and the Democratic club is, and, and you know what you can use the different rooms for and things like that. But there's a lot that you learn, and you count on staff, but you count on, on lobbyists helping staff out. And I think in terms of not just understanding the congressional process, which is a large one in itself, but understanding the core process as well, which is even more convoluted and nuanced, can take even an experienced staff member who's never worked on a core project before, you know, two, two, three years before they really have it nailed down. There's just so many components. Yeah, I would say that if you were to do a census on the Hill, you would find maybe six staff people out of 535 offices who really knew it well, and they probably are on the committee staff, which handles either the authorization or the appropriation uh, for the core. Um, it is difficult. A lot of people count on experts. I know what happens with um, us is that, of course, our local government clients are experts in what their need is, and they can come in and they can describe that to members, and they can answer those questions we can be able to then turn that around and say, well, Mr. and Ms. Senator or Congressperson, here's what you can do to help that need, and here's how you go about it. Right, I mean, but just, she's a beach nourishment project, for example. You know, town mayor knows, town manager knows, we need sand, yeah. right? Well, you got to realize you need a, a word of authorization or go into the Section 7001 process we've talked about on this before. On this podcast before, you get your seven thousand one, or you get your, your word of authorization, and then you got to go get the money to do the study, 
and then you got to go back and get all you know and you go back for PED and then you go back for construction and it's just this this cycle and it's not just simple as asking hey I need sand there's five to seven or more years of process and procedure there that was unfortunate <laughs> but is is just the, the federal process and and understanding that and how to navigate it is is uh, is difficult and I certainly understand that members of uh, representatives have served two-year terms. They're looking to see what they can get accomplished in those two years. If you're looking to get a core project started and finished in two years, you're looking for the impossible. It cannot be done. No amount of money it wouldn't make any difference. wouldn't make any difference. It yeah. wouldn't make any difference. So you have to be able to set expectations of both certainly our clients, but mostly the member of Congress, so that they can understand that they have a continuing role in this. And for some of them, the continuing role is one that actually can help them get reelected, realizing that they've gotten you through stage one and they still have four more stages to go. So they've maybe got four more congressional terms to go on just that project alone. And they can say, look at the progress we're making. And I know that uh, that can be frustrating for some, at some times, but on the other hand, there are ways along the way, there are times along the way where they can find opportunities to claim credit, to hit the press release, and do all the things they deserve to get for all the efforts they put into it. Plus, there'll be the glitches that come up where sometimes a call or a letter from them will make a difference between success and failure. Yeah. So WERDA and the appropriation, uh, and the yeah, and the appropriations process really go hand in hand, and you'll you'll see that especially uh, sometimes you'll see almost authorizing language in an appropriations bill, and then almost uh, well, it doesn't really go the other way, but no, sometimes in supplemental bills you can see uh, which we should be expecting following Hurricane Ian. We hope uh, that the core will sometimes like after Sandy will be given the authority to do certain things like study this or that or um yeah, you have a hybrid like that but most um you know we saw recently one example of uh of many that have seen over the years where members put out a press release saying that they got 45 million dollars uh for uh, building a bridge or seawall or something like that and the answer is that they got a provision in WERDA that authorizes the spending of that $45 million for that project. They then have to go to appropriations committee and get it appropriated, and that's not necessarily a done deal. And it's not done in the same year. It's done in a different year. So that can unintentionally deceive constituents. Say, oh, look at all the money that they got. Yeah, not yet. You know, but so be it. That's politics. So as we near the end of the 117th Congress, there have been quite a significant number of bills in the coastal, what we call, call the coastal realm, that have been introduced. Um, only a fraction of those, unfortunately, have actually been signed into law. We've got 290 bills uh, as of today that have been introduced. Um, about six of them have passed. Um, most, but not all, have been appropriations fundings. Uh, we had some supplemental funding. We had other things going on like that. But to give you an idea, this has been a little different. More bills this Congress than in the last Congress, 
and every Congress is a two-year period. So, so far, 290 bills have been introduced, and yes, there are only a few days left in Congress, but I, we're still seeing bills introduced. Um, the top category, uh, sea level rise and climate change, 60 bills have been introduced there. 40 bills on the flood insurance program. Absolutely none of them has resulted in a change in the program. One of them uh, got passed by being, uh, oh, not yet. One of them is there to extend the program. We already have uh, temporary extensions going on. Uh, disaster bills. Offshore wind. One, the 33 of the uh, bills have been introduced on offshore wind, and we're tracking that because it has significant, uh, these offshore wind farms have significant impacts on coastal communities. And then we have the old coastal miscellaneous category picking up another 50 bills. So, you know, in essence, there are a lot of different categories there, environment and other things like that, that I haven't mentioned, but uh, more bills this Congress than in the last Congress. Unfortunately, no more bills passed than I've seen in the uh, past Congresses. So I think that's an issue of one local activism resulting in uh, activism at the national level. We've said this before. I don't think there's any organization effectively representing coastal communities or any good segment of coastal communities here in Washington. And if you don't have a good organizational uh, advocate in Washington, then you are missing out because for every kind of farmers, be they duck farmers, pig farmers, cattle farmers, whatever it may be, there is a separate organization for them. There's an organization for cities. There's an organization for states and all those. But they have a lot of different things to cover. So there's an organization of scientists, but not of coastal scientists. What I'm saying is those there should be an organization that pulls together those coastal interests that uh, throughout the country where there will be differences in East, West, Great Lakes, Gulf, uh, the Pacific Islands, the, uh, uh, the Caribbean Islands uh, possessions that we have. All of those will have differences, but they will have commonalities. Most of them are having their commonalities in erosion and uh, flooding. Plus, they're dealing with sea level rise and global climate change. If you just focused on those issues, we would have a much better result than that six bills passed in Congress in the past two years. Well, I certainly look forward to seeing more ocean, beach, lake-focused bills in the 118th Congress, which we can get excited for. And uh, if you have not voted already, go ahead and vote. I got my I vote sticker because I voted in advance. So I have to put that on, so I can just walk around with it. We'll but be back with you guys in December. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned. Bye. -bye.